So hello everyone, this is Carlos um, with Evolve and we're here today uh, with the Segmentify podcast, the e-commerce growth series. Um, and I'm, I'm honored to have Steve here um, and Scott Emans. We're going to be talking about retail in North America. So yeah, without further ado, let's, let's get started. Thanks, Carlos. So, hi, uh, Scott Emmons here, and uh, I've uh, uh, partnered uh, with Carlos to, to introduce this e-commerce growth uh, uh, show podcast here in North America. Uh, he's been doing it uh, uh, in other parts of the world uh, for some time now, and uh, so now uh, uh, we're ready to uh, uh, do this in the United States. And uh, uh, I, my background is uh, uh, retail innovation, and I spent a long time uh, at the Neiman Marcus Group, uh, uh, and then have done you know several other things uh, uh, around retail and innovation since. Uh, and uh, so this is our inaugural North American version of the podcast, and we are honored to have uh, Steve Dennis as our inaugural guest uh, uh, on the podcast. Steve uh, has more than 30 years of experience as a strategic advisor as a board member and general manager. Uh, he has been uh, you know, in the C-suite uh, at, at at least two Fortune 500 retailers. Uh, he has worked with many, many retail luxury uh, technology and social uh, uh, brands uh, to help them inspire, catalyze and design uh, uh, their retail, their commerce business. Uh, he's also a senior contributor uh, to Forbes magazine, uh, and uh, uh, he has a very popular podcast that he's running, uh, as well as, uh, you know, very important, and the thing we're going to talk a lot about today is he has a new book out called Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Digital Disruption. Uh, and so we're excited to, you know, have a conversation uh, with Steve about uh, Remarkable Retail. Uh, good morning, Steve. Good morning. It's great to be with you guys. So, uh, how have you been keeping yourself uh, busy lately? Without uh, you know the kind of the the world speaking uh, tours uh, that were going on uh, uh, prior pre pandemic. Well, I've never found it hard to stay busy. I found it hard to stay productive. So that's that's the ongoing challenge for me. But uh, you know, it's been an adjustment. I've been doing. Um, I've continued to do consulting. I've actually done a fair number of. Uh, virtual speaking gigs. And so I'm adapting to that and um, continuing to do some writing and, and other things. So it's, it's been a big adjustment, but, but in the scheme of things, it's been, it's all good. Excellent. <clears throat> Excellent. And, uh, uh, you know, I guess, uh, you know, in terms of timing for the podcast, you know, where it's, it's a very kind of discombobulated time as, uh, uh, you know, we're still at the time of this recording, you know, waiting for a, a pronouncement of who's going to be uh, our president for the next four years. Uh, so, you know, I've been sort of in, uh, you know, martini with a Xanax chaser mode for the last couple of days, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, hoping, you know, that the, uh, uh, you know, this comes to an end soon and we can return to some kind of normalcy. Yeah. I would, uh, I would uh, recommend the lidocaine drip, you know, just like yeah. a steady IV, yeah. uh, you know, it just kind of keeps you where you need to be for, for a while. You know, I have to say that you know, basically, my my uh, my 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 approach has been to just turn off the news uh, and stop with the you know twenty four seven breathless pronouncements about you know what's going on, and you know I'll I'll, I'll you know I'll turn things back on once we know what the answer is. <laughs> it's probably a good idea. <laughs> I guess. 
Um, so let's dive in, uh, you know, to some uh, uh, talk about uh, remarkable retail. You know, uh, when I read your book, uh, you know, which I, you know, I have to say did speak to me profoundly. You know, you know, based, uh, you know, on my 16 years at Neiman Marcus, you know, I could I could see. Uh, you know, from personal experience, a lot of the things that you talk about uh, in that book, and you know, I know your your experience is, is even broader than the Neiman Marcus, but uh, experience. But you know, I I I know where some of uh, you know those learnings came from. Uh, <laughs> I guess <laughs> when, when, when I read we, we did overlap a little bit. Yeah, we did. I, I, and actually, I'm curious, what were what was your time there? What, what you were there from when to when? I was there from 2004 to 2008, and so it was right before the first private equity buyout. So, uh, and I was the first chief strategy officer there. So, uh, what was what was interesting was just kind of a blank slate to look at growth opportunities. But I was also supposed to work on uh, multi-channel or what has come to be called omni-channel initiatives. Uh, so it was a pretty wide scope of things to look at, uh, but it was all pretty much startup kinds of activities because a lot of the things really didn't exist at that point. Yeah, understood. And so, and, you know, I guess our paths did not cross so much. Uh, I, I was there in 2003 is when I joined, but I was a contractor uh, and, and remained a contractor through 2006 and uh, was very specifically part of the product reporting team. So, you know, I was doing business intelligence stuff uh, uh, basically during those times and, uh, uh, you know, was not asked to spend a lot of time, you know, with senior executives like yourself <laughs> in that role. Well, uh, you might want to count that as a blessing. Well, maybe, uh, you know, kind of uh, when things change for me is, you know, when they, you know, asked, uh, you know, uh, asked me to start thinking about tackling, uh, you know, what our digital infrastructure and stores look like, you know, and, and, you know, my career changed pretty radically. And, and, and then I was spending time uh, with folks in roles like the one you had uh, uh, at that point, which uh, uh, may come up later in this conversation. Um, so, you know, one of the, uh, so happily in your book, you've managed to uh, find a way to dump the term omnichannel. So I thank you for that. Uh, no charge. But, but the, uh, uh, you know, on the other hand of that, on the other side of that, you now uh, uh, have caused me to have to say bifurcation a lot. Um, and, and you do know that every time you say that, an angel gets its wings and I get five cents. <laughs> Yes, excellent. So, uh, you know, when we think about, you know, this, the, 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 what you call the great bifurcation 2.0 uh, in the book, uh, when, when did you, you know, have the epiphany, you know, that this was occurring and that, uh, uh, you, know, the, you know, the boring middle, as you called it, uh, was going extinct? I think I started to really notice it maybe 10 years ago. It was gnawing at me. So before I was at Neiman Marcus, as you may know, I was at Sears, uh, my journey from the outhouse to the penthouse, as I like to say. And I worked uh, in 1999, I was responsible for multi-channel integration. And then I moved to be the uh, VP of corporate strategy in like 2001. And uh, our efforts at that point were really around trying to restore growth and profitability to uh, the department store business. And we did a ton of research, ton of competitive analysis. There are a number of things we did that I think were, were pointed in the right direction. But what I started to notice 
was, you know, what was it really going to take to win, grow, and keep a lot more customers? You know, what, what had to happen? And I think it was obvious to me at that point that being on the mall was challenging. Trying to sell a little bit of everything to everybody was challenging. And so I kind of had this gnawing feeling uh, when I left in 2003 that there was just no way to fix Sears. But at the time, that seemed very specific to Sears to me. When I got off on my own uh, consulting in uh, 2009, 2010, I started to look more at overall trends and which retailers were thriving or not. I really started to notice that most of the troubles were occurring in these middle of the road retailers. In other words, those retailers that were not either strongly value convenience, kind of efficiency oriented like Walmart, Amazon, et cetera, Costco. Uh, and there was a lot of growth on the high end luxury, uh, but even more specialty retailers like Sephora, et cetera. But really this middle ground, whether it was department stores or whether it was uh, specialty apparel retailers, whatever, that was really where where the problem was occurring. And as I delved into it, which I go into a lot more detail in the book, I started to realize that when you've got this just world of abundant choice uh, and, and you know, not, not only choice in product, but places you can buy it from, the information you can get, that even being very good at something was no longer really good enough anymore. You really had to much more finely hone your value proposition in a much more specific way. And so to me, being in this middle ground was just likely to be kind of slow, lingering death. And then really over the last few years, even pre-pandemic, I think that's become just even, even more obvious when you look at where the store closings and bankruptcies and liquidations are. Yeah, so, you know, uh, you know the press loved to talk about, you know, this, this retail apocalypse, you know, the retail dives and, and publications of the world that, you know, breathlessly you know, pronounced, you know, who they thought were going to go bankrupt uh, this year, et cetera, right? You know, we went through it. We went through a long period of that. And then, and then comes the pandemic, uh, you know, which is it further changed the scene. Is, 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 is the pandemic represent, uh, you know, that retail apocalypse, uh, you know, everybody, you know, so, uh, you know, uh, you know, wanted to talk about, uh, uh, you know, a year or two ago? Well, in some ways, yes, but I, I think, you know, pre-pandemic, the point that I was trying to make for many years was that if you actually looked at the growth of physical retail, um, it was positive. E-commerce was growing much faster, but physical retail was still growing. Uh, depending upon how you want to look at it, because there's some definitional issues, but at least in the United States, close to 90% of all retail was still being done in physical stores. You also had dozens of retailers that were opening lots and lots of stores. And in 2018, I think it was, physical retail in aggregate grew on a dollar value basis more than e-commerce did. So if you got away from the retail apocalypse and you actually looked at that, you'd actually look, you know, like re physical retail is actually a pretty good business to be in if you're the right sort of business. So I just think fundamentally, that was kind of a ridiculous argument. What was going on for sure was the collapse of the middle that we talked about, as probably most listeners know in some countries, but particularly the US and a little bit more in Canada, there's been a rampant overbuilding. So just way more capacity chasing 
too many dollars. And certainly the shift to more e-commerce, generally speaking, puts less pressure on or, or tends to um, push you to have less physical space. So I think it was just inevitable that we were going to face a big reckoning. Uh, it started in 2017, where the net number of stores being closed uh, was, was greater than the net number of stores being opened. But, but certainly when the bottom falls out of many markets, particularly when physical retail stores are closed and may remain closed for a while, I mean, that, that just forced the reckoning to happen in a much more compressed time frame. Got it. So, so in a way, uh, it really was a right-sizing, would be a fair way to say it, as opposed yeah. to an apocalypse. Yeah. I think it's an, an inevitable right-sizing. I think also, um, and again, you know, it depends on where you sit, right? Because there's certainly plenty of retailers that were destined to close a lot of stores, even if the pandemic didn't occur, because they didn't have a viable business model. Um, so the pandemic forced them into bankruptcy and in some cases liquidation, but the, the, one of the ironic things I think is number one, even before the pandemic, a lot of these digitally native brands, which originally raised um, all this venture capital on the premise that stores weren't necessary are actually opening a lot of stores. Uh, the other thing is you still have stores like, or retail brands like tractor supply, five below dollar general that are, um, and most of the off-price retailers that have a very small amount of e-commerce that are opening stores and actually announced more store openings during the pandemic. So it really depends on where you sit in the retail equation. The other kind of ironic thing is, as, and maybe we'll get to this, but you know, one of the things the pandemic has obviously driven are things like curbside pickup and fulfillment from stores. Well, if you didn't have a physical store you wouldn't be able to do curbside pickup or fulfill from a store. So to me, a lot of this gets to just the, the false distinction between talking about physical retail and talking about e-commerce as if they're largely two totally different things. Well, you know, so I, you know, I had this, you know, idea that we kind of go through your, uh, your kind of eight essentials for retail, but, 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 your comment just now about curbside pickup has made me change my <laughs> change the order just a little bit because uh, I'm curious as to your thoughts. Uh, you know, it's very interesting to me that uh, uh, you know, with uh, uh, you know the the folks not wanting to go to physical stores right now, uh, and the popularity of not only delivery but curbside pickup, uh, it seems that it's driven uh, you know some some services. Uh, uh, that you know could fit into your remarkable definition further down the food chain uh, than they would have been available before. That you know that I am getting a high touch white glove experience at Walmart uh, I, because of the pandemic. What's what? Are, what are your thoughts there? Well, one is I think we have to parse out why some of these innovations, if you want to call them that, have occurred. There certainly are a number of innovations which are driven by the consumer really not having any other choice, right? If the store is not open, you can't go to buy stuff at a store. So there's a lot of substitution, I think particularly to home delivery uh, and e-commerce more broadly that happened really because there was no option. Then we've also got a lot of other things which I think were probably pretty good ideas before the pandemic that are being implemented 
that it turns out consumers really like. And I think curbside pickup is one of them because it's not a new concept. It's just kind of taking buy online, pick up in store and moving it 10 yards or whatever. So, so I think, um, <laughs> you know, to me, the broader question is really, why does it take a crisis for so many retailers to innovate? Um, because like I said, a lot of these ideas retailers have been having success with prior to the pandemic. Uh, but maybe, you know, I th I'm, I'm assuming I talked to a CEO actually the other day about why they, because I knew they had curbside pickup and buy online pickup in store on the drawing board for like two years. And they ended up implementing it in like two weeks when, when the pandemic hit. And I'm like, well, why did you wait so long? And he said, well, we like the idea of getting customers in our stores so we can sell them more stuff. And I'm like, well, yeah, I get that. Um, but <laughs> if, if you're trying to be customer centric, shouldn't you be meeting their needs in a powerful, in a powerful way and hope that that all works out over time. So I think there's a lot of dynamics going on in terms of the innovation we've seen here. Um, and certainly a lot of it, I think will, will turn out to be good ideas that will persist well beyond the pandemic. Yeah, I guess the other question on that would be, do the economics of it work? You know, in a, uh, you know, in a, a business like grocery where margins are tight, um, does the extra cost of delivering uh, curbside, for instance, uh, uh, take too much margin? Well, I think that's, that's one thing that's not getting enough discussion right now. I think everybody gets all excited about, oh, we've accelerated 10 years of whatever. And um, one, I think the math of that's just not right. But even putting that aside, I think for sure, one of the things that will slow down the growth, uh, or at least the persistence of some of these services at such a high rate is that the economics are terrible. And home delivery is definitely challenging in a, in a lot of cases. I think what will be helpful for a lot of these brands to, to, to sort through is, particularly when consumer dynamics um, change and, and stores or people start to feel that stores are more safe to go to or, or hang out longer is how does that mix of particularly in grocery? Like, I think there's plenty of, uh, I was talking to somebody in the grocery business a couple of weeks ago and they were saying, well, we know that there are certain purchase occasions, which left to their own devices, consumers would absolutely prefer to come into the store, you know, picking out produce or meat, fish, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, that very few people will just say, hey, throw a bunch of produce or meat into my trunk. So, but there's lots of other stuff, which is more commodity-like or heavier stuff or whatever, which just driving up and having it put in your trunk is incredible value. So I think it's gonna be the mix of that. If you understand your customers and you go like, okay, 80% of the time they're gonna come in and buy the high margin stuff, 20% of the time I'll be lucky to break even if I have to deliver it to their house or, or throw it in, in uh, and do curbside pickup, you know, maybe that's okay because the mix is good. But if all you're doing is sort of subsidizing uh, your losses by responding to a general trend, I mean, eventually I think that's got to sort itself out. And there just also is not the infrastructure in many cases to keep, um, to be able to do home delivery at the rate that it is right now. Yeah, I, I would assume that some of the home that the possibility of doing home delivery is being driven by the fact that you've got a lot of folks out of work and they're willing to come in and, and be the deliverers, uh, uh, if you will, at this point. Yeah, well, uh, one of the problems with um, I, I spent early part of my career very involved with home delivery, though it was big ticket stuff like appliances and big screen TVs. And 
certainly technology uh, to route people and, and all that kind of stuff can be very, very helpful, but it's still hard to work out how, you know, whether I'm delivering Chinese food or some groceries or a dishwasher, I still need a person and a truck or a car <laughs> to drive between the place where the product is and to the place where the consumer is going to pick it up. And so there's just some inherent costs that aren't overcome because we live in a digital world. And yes, I think right now the labor supply is probably such that that's a little bit more favorable. But, um, but yeah, there's not a lot of margin in the restaurant business generally. There's not a lot of margin in the grocery business. So these aren't inherently great home delivery businesses unless you can get the consumer to, to pay for it, which doesn't seem to be generally what's happening at any high yeah. rate. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's I, I, speaking personally, right? If I think about, do I want curbside or delivery? Delivery was more convenient, but delivery adds 30 or $40 to the process, right? You know, in other words, uh, you know, I would, from the economic standpoint, pick curbside. It still costs the grocer more, right? To, to do, deliver that, that curbside experience. But, you know, now, that, uh, I, I, you know, I assume if you think about, you know, the public in general, we've been trained to expect that now, you know, right. you've let the genie out of the bottle. It's going to be really hard to, you know, roll that all up and say, we don't do that anymore just because things have returned to normal. I think that's true. I mean, there, there's, there's been this, uh, and this is just, I guess, the latest manifest, manifestation of it. But, uh, you know, we've been in kind of a last mile delivery arms race for a while. Uh, you know, back in the day when I was first in the mail order business, I mentioned this, I think, in the book a little bit, like when I worked for the, at the Sears catalog and then at Land's End, you know, we, we made money on delivery. And generally speaking, our promise date would be four, five, six days. And you could pay an enormous amount of money to get it there faster. Well, free delivery, free returns in traditional e-commerce has pretty much become table stakes. Uh, to your point now, a lot of this home delivery stuff is, is you know, the habits are being formed. And, um, you know, it is, it is hard, I think, to put the genie back in the bottle. But, you know, I think some, part of what has to happen is um, if you get into a race to the bottom with Amazon, you know, you're probably going to lose that race. When we start to talk about some of these other services where maybe Amazon and Walmart aren't so much the competition, I think there, you know, there's got to be some settling. I'll, just one observation. I mean, the, the number of discounts that I have gotten from restaurant delivery companies in the last month is staggering. And I'm trying to work out how uh, $15 of Thai food that somebody is delivering to me, uh, you know, even with a nice tip, I'm like there's not a lot of margin for Postmates or the restaurant or, you know, the delivery person and all of that. Like I try to like reverse engineer the economics of that. And, you know, all I can figure is somebody's subsidizing my delivery of Thai food. So thank you, Postmates or Uber or whatever. <laughs> that can't go on forever. Yeah, not sustainable. Uh, I don't so, see how. Interesting. So if, if we if we dive into, you know, some of the, your essentials for retail, you know, you, you have eight of them, six you've listed as table stakes, right? You know, things uh, uh, that, you know, everybody should be doing. Um, and you know, you start talking by talking about digitally enabled, which was near and dear to my heart because, you know, when I founded the innovation lab at Neiman Marcus, it was really a lot about that. 
Right. Right. And, uh, uh, and if you, I think if you can recall your time back in Eva Marcus and think about what kind of technology we had in the store uh, in 2004, uh, it was 20 year old cash registers, yeah. maybe some scanning guns uh, <laughs> and maybe some walkie talkies. And that right. was it. <laughs> that was the technology stack. It's uh, great if you're having a Cub Scout meeting, but yes. not, not so great for other things. Yeah. So, so you know, fast forward, here we are in, in 2020, uh, uh, you know, with everybody talking about, you know, digital first and, and so forth. What's, what, what does that mean now? Well, I think we've seen for many, many years, I don't, I don't think it was you know, too, too obvious back in 2004, 2005, but I think certainly since 2010 or so, the influence of digital channels on shopping has been rapidly growing. And certainly it's a little bit different depending upon the product category. And certainly there are some differences in terms of when we say digital influence, what do we mean? Like it's much more obvious if it's a straight e-commerce transaction that that was digitally influenced. But one of the things that Forrester has shown over the years is that digital channels actually influence way more brick and mortar sales than they actually do e-commerce transactions. And I think that what we've seen there is that people are going um, online to research before they go to the store. I mean, they may do be, be doing very mundane things like just checking store hours or what have you. But certainly as we see growth of research online before going to the store, checking store inventory, maybe buy online, pick up in store, buy online and return to store, the, the blurring between digital and physical activities has, has just continued to advance. So I think it's becoming right now that for many, many retailers, many, many consumers, going to your digital device, whether that's a laptop or smartphone or whatever, is almost the default beginning of that customer journey. And then maybe you go to a store, but then maybe you look at your mobile device again to check prices or see if the other store you might want to shop at is open or has a sale or what have you. So I think we, we, it, digital enablement has just been growing and growing and growing. It's been accelerated certainly by, by the COVID times. Um, but, but it's really the reason why we have to get away from the separate channel sort of idea and really understand the holistic customer journey and the role that digital plays and in some cases may not play because there's still, there's still plenty of great analog experiences that, that can be important, but you have to really dissect the business you're in, the customers you're trying to serve and what they're trying to get done. You know, I, I think about, uh, you know, when the iPhone was first introduced as being the catalyst that really, uh, you know, lit the fire, uh, uh, especially at Neiman Marcus, but, uh, you know, really, really lit the fire in terms of, uh, uh, you know, thinking about digitally enabled. Uh, yeah. And this, this, this crosses over into some of your other table stakes like mobile uh, right. as well. Uh, and you, you think about now a customer walking into the store uh, and they have the entire world of information at their fingertips and your sales associates have a cash wrap and a, a you know, a, 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 a register running an ancient version of Windows, right, uh, you right. know, as their, <laughs> as their, uh, as their device. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, the world changed uh, at that point, you know, and I, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It, well, I think people don't remember sometimes that um, it was just, I believe, 2007 when the iPhone came out and Android in 2008. And, you know, even for the first few years, uh, the adoption cycle wasn't, wasn't you know, booming. Uh, but certainly by the time 
get to say nine, eight, nine, 10 years ago, so many people had these smart devices. And that was the thing that really, I think was the beginning of breaking down a lot of the distinction between brick and mortar and e-commerce. Because to your point, if you've got the world of shopping at your disposal, anytime you want to go shopping, it could be when you're in the store, like you say, it could be, hey, I'm standing in line at the DMV and I don't know, I need to get a gift for my kid and let me just <laughs> get on my phone and check that out while I'm standing in line or, you know, whatever it is. And so that's why I say in a later chapter about how I think this idea of what the best location is, which was always about, uh, you know, the cliche in real estate, location, location, location was really about that brick and mortar store. And that's still important, certainly in a lot of cases, but the best location in, in so many cases now is how you show up on that customer's device in, in context uh, for what it is they're trying to do. And if you don't show up in remarkable ways in that journey, you risk just being out of the, out of the game, right? Because they're going to lock on to some other um, competitor or some other way of going. Yeah. Um, agreed. Totally. So, uh, you know, and I think yeah, there were two sides to that equation, you know, when we, when we started thinking about digital enabledness uh, and mobility and, and some of the other things you talk about in the book, and that is, you know, not only were the customers armed with this capability, you know, but the, 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 the retailer needed to arm themselves with right. similar, yeah. similar capabilities, right. To meet the customer's need and to deliver the experience, the data, the whatever, uh, at the point of need. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you a, a quick, funny story. When I was at Sears, I want to say this was maybe 2001, 2002. We were, we were actually pretty early in launching e-commerce initially for our home appliance and tool business. And one of the things our, our commission sales people hated the idea that we were quote unquote going to be competing with them was Sears.com. What ended up happening fairly quickly was consumers were coming into the store, having printed out product information from the web. And they came in and they said, okay, I think I want the Gen Air, whatever. Uh, I can't decide whether I want, you know, three cycle, four cycle, you know, what, some particular thing. And it ended up, the conversion rates went up uh, greatly and it, and it simplified the shopping experience. So that was just an interesting dynamic. But the other thing that it really started to impress upon us and, and, and me over, over the years was consumer knows what, I mean, sometimes they just have no clue and they just walk in and they're just wandering around. But yeah, if, if you're doing your research online and whatever that looks like on your company's website or the brand's website or talking to friends or whatever, you come in with a set of things in your head. You could have gone deep on a particular product in a way that it's just not reasonable for even the best salesperson to possibly have that sort of knowledge. So yeah, you have to be able to arm your sales associates with minimally the information that, that customers are likely to come in with, but hopefully even show more value uh, or otherwise, why do they need you if, if you're just a showroom? True. So uh, thinking about uh, your time at Sears, you know, where, you know, they began to uh, meld that e-commerce experience, right, with the in-store experience, as you just described, uh, was there uh, uh, the infrastructure in place to, to tie those two businesses together? I mean, I asked that because, you know, I, I know specifically, you know, from my experience, you know, my time at Neiman's in the early days, uh, those two businesses were different businesses that just happened to share a name. 
Yeah. So um, it's a little bit of a long story. I'll try to give you the short version. Um, in 1999, we had a, I tell the story in the book and um, we had a, an officer's retreat and our relatively new CEO, Arthur Martinez said that the future of Sears is going to be uh, being able to meet the customer anytime, anywhere, anyway. So he had his real insight and a few other people did as to where uh, this kind of omni-channel world was going. So we did start down the path. And actually when I was made VP of multi-channel integration right after that, um, our view was that the shopping journeys had to be interrelated, that we were not going to set up Sears.com out in Silicon Valley and, and set it up as a separate business. So we never set up the online business as a truly separate business. And uh, but what we absolutely needed to do, to your point, was, I mean, we were incredibly siloed. We had all these different databases, inventory, 800 numbers, back when you had 800 numbers. And so um, our job in the channel integration effort was to start to build that platform to break down those silos and put the technology in place to be able to bring that vision to life. So we started very early in on that. I think Nordstrom, a few others, Williams-Sonoma, REI, I think we're also down that path, a bunch of other companies really stuck to that separate business structure. So actually when I showed up at Neiman's in 2004 and needed to work on some of these things, it, it was the silo structure, the idea that these were really separate businesses that was the huge, huge barrier to overcome. And culturally that was not something that was was going to happen. Yeah, I, th I think not, not, only, not only separate, but you know, a, a mindset of it should be separate and will remain separate forever. You know, at least in 2004, I would say it was there. Yeah. And, you know, it was, um, I mean, it was, it was, I think there was a, I mean, some of it, I, I don't know. I mean, in benefit of uh, hindsight, I probably have some, some thoughts that, you know, I didn't see at the time, but I think the view, which later was informed by data was that the, originally the catalog was really the Neiman Marcus store or the Bergdorf Goodman store, or the Horch House store, or the other brands we owned. That was the representation of the store for markets where we didn't have a store. And so I think initially when the mail order catalog business essentially moved online, that was still the prevailing wisdom that, you know, never saw the twins meet. When I remember presenting some data that half of our e-commerce business was done in existing store trade areas. And that was met with, that can't be true. Uh, it turned out it was true, uh, but that was a pretty profound shift. And, and I remember some of the feedback that I got was, well, you know, why, why would anybody buy online if you had a good salesperson? And I remember a debate ensuing between some of the executive team as to, you know, the camps on that. But yeah, I think, I think a number of companies were very slow to realize this idea that the customer was the channel and that you had to break down those silos and organize, you know, go be one brand to the customer and figure out how to make all those pieces work together. But, you know, when you don't have the, t when it's expensive, as you know better than I do, when it's expensive to, to put some of that technology in place, when you're overcoming cultural, uh, you know, long history of doing things a certain way, you know, it's a lot easier said than than just you know doing a clever PowerPoint presentation on customer Absolutely. data. Absolutely, you know, when, when when some of your main systems are written in COBOL, running on a mainframe, uh, it it can be difficult <laughs> to, to to modernize some of these things. Uh, you know, yeah, I, and, 
Go ahead. I was going to say just one, you know, one advantage, which is probably obvious, is one of the great advantages of some of these so-called digitally native vertical brands, or not necessarily vertical brands, but digitally native brands that started online and then started to open stores is, and this is not really unlike what some of the great catalog companies did a million years ago when they first started opening stores, was they never set up the different businesses to begin with. They always thought about it as one customer experience and that the catalog may cause you to buy from me. Uh, via fax or 800 number or whatever. And the store may cause you to buy in the store or you may go to the store just to check it out and then order online. So, I mean, that that, that became, I think, very much part of, you know, the Williams-Sonoma and Sur La Table REI ethos 40 years ago or whenever it was. It's also very much, I think, what we see with Untucket and Warby Parker and others was they never set up those silos. They architected their systems from scratch to be one experience. Whereas the Macy's of the world and the Neiman Marcuses of the world, they have to undo that, uh, not only culturally, but just make a massive amount of investment uh, to, in time to, uh, to, to bring that kind of omni-channel, harmonized, whatever you want to call it, vision to life. And, uh, you know, go ahead, Carlos. Thank you. Just one question on, on that point, because I find it super interesting. Uh, how do you see, Steve, uh, then, you know, organizational changes for let's say there's more like traditional retailers, you know, so because you, you have the, the new up and coming players or, or even technology companies that they have another way to organize themselves. There was a company I worked uh, very closely with a CEO, uh, Mariano, and he would have this theory that maybe retailers, they should have uh, two CEOs. So one CEO that talks, really understands technology and another more traditional CEO, and that should be rolled out to the rest of the organization and it's not necessarily more expensive because then you you have people talking the same language you know and, and being more agile so how do you see that well i think i can uh, it's a great question i don't know that i've got a great answer because i think i know more about what not to do rather than to have kind of a general prescription for all retailers i think certainly if you're organized in such a way that e-commerce or the online business has a separate P&L mm-hmm. and separate marketing, that's absolutely counterproductive. And I can go through a gazillion examples as to including <laughs> some that were very painful. Um, I, I, you know, I think it's very difficult to be able to get the right senior structure. I'm actually working with a client now trying to figure this out. And it's not, it's not so simple because, you know, on the one hand, you obviously want to inject this um, technology digital perspective into the company, right? So a lot of companies now have chief digital officers, and you know, I know those can look at different, you know, different ways at mm-hmm. different companies. Um, you know, that's hugely important. Um, I think though, you want to have an executive other than the CEO who somehow or other is either like the chief experience officer or the chief revenue officer, right. where it doesn't, you know, all the channel sales report to them. But that gets tricky because, you know, you do need, I mean, there are some things, as, as you guys know, there are some things about merchandising product on an e-commerce site that are a lot different than merchandising product in a store. And inventory models get complicated and attribution gets complicated. So so I don't want to make it sound like I think, you know, I'm, I'm very good at, you know, silos belong on farms, channel agnostic, like I make a lot of these bold pronouncements, uh, but it is more about what to run away from as opposed to like one specific concept around what to do. So I'm sorry, I can't give you a better 
better mm-hmm. prescription. But mm-hmm. I, I certainly think if you see, you know, there's a lot of focus on online growth versus comp store sales or sales per square foot. That's mm-hmm. that's a company that's not is either just responding to what Wall Street wants to hear, which is wrong, uh, or they don't really get it. Thank you. Very nice. So time has flown. So I, I do want to make sure that we, we, we at least touch on, uh, you had eight points and two of them were yeah. differentiators, right? Uh, and I wanted to make sure we touched on the good stuff, right? The pay dirt. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, if I, if I do the table stakes, uh, you know, now what do I do to, you know, set myself apart from the competition? And, you know, the first one is being memorable. Right. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I guess, you know, for some brands in retail, that's 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 easier than others. Uh, you know, I love the story you started that chapter off with about the, you know, the the, the, the rancher guy that comes in and uh, to Anima Marcus and says, I've never seen so many things that nobody needs uh, right. to paraphrase. Uh, yep. You know, and, yep. and, and, and that was a business that really was all about, you know, Anima Marcus did not sell anything you needed, you know, exactly. period. You know, it was all things that you wanted. Right. Um, right. So, uh, you know, just thinking in general about, uh, uh, you know, being memorable, uh, what, you know, what, what about when you're not, you know, at the top of the, you know, the luxury uh, uh, sphere like Neiman's was, you know, what are, what are you know, these, this, this, this middle that's falling apart, what, what can they do to save themselves and be more memorable? Can they, is it, or is it a, a task that can't be that's- done? Well, I think I think it's hard. I mean, uh, first of all, I'll just go back to you know one of the reasons why I use the term remarkable retail is which I borrow heavily um, from the way Seth Godin developed that with his book Purple Cow, which is this idea not only that it's remarkable in in the sense that it's distinctive, but that people will talk about it. And I think from a from a business design standpoint, from a marketing standpoint, branding standpoint. The stories, you know, we, we want to try to create a story for customers that, that really resonates with them, but hopefully they also will share. Like that's the most powerful. And, you know, that's what net promoter score and other things fundamentally point to. So, so when I think about memorable, I think it's this idea, and I talk about the characteristics of memorable, which is, yes, you've got to be unique, uh, but you've also got to be intensely customer relevant, right? There's plenty of things that are different, but like I know like a Ferrari is really unique, but that's not relevant to me. Uh, you need to be authentic. In other words, got to be very much in fitting with your brand. So this is to hopefully point people away from gimmicky things. Cause like, oh, JCPenney's now got a coffee bar and, and a fitness studio or whatever. There's well, a, okay. There's a tattoo parlor at Kohl's. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. That, I mean, all right. Maybe that I, works, but I went radical. I went radical. That's very radical, but but that's not necessarily really what your brand is about. I think the the three others are really you know what's wow worthy. What is that that thing or feeling or emotion that really sticks with you? Now I absolutely agree with you that, or at least what I think you were suggesting, that it's easier to think about doing those incredibly wow moments in a higher end brand uh, because there's more emotional content. You know, people are paying for things that go beyond just the functionality of, of the product. But I think, you know, Amazon Go for people that have experienced that, I mean, that's, that's a wow. In some cases, going to a TJX and finding that great brand for 90% off, that's a wow. So I don't think at all, and, and if you're willing to tell your friends like, wow, I went to TJ Maxx and found this incredible dress for this party, you know, then you are, that's remarkable, right? So, so I think there absolutely are ways to be remarkable that aren't all about super experiential retail or, or, or very high end, but it, it is a little bit more challenging. Um, 
And then, you know, hopefully you can really make whatever you're doing, not just a, a gimmicky thing, uh, which is the problem with like coffee bars and ping pong tables or whatever. It's like, okay, that's a nice visual merchandising feature, but is that really something I can own that make unique to my brand? And is that something scalable and enduring that will really stick with, with people over time? You know, and the, and the final differentiator uh, is radical, which to me, this, this is where you really, uh, you know, uh, are, are talking deeply about innovation efforts. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that, um, so the main idea here probably is, is building this culture of experimentation. Uh, get into a few other things, which is really more about just being, I mean, it's not a new point, but being willing to fail. You know, if failure is not an option, then neither is success. And, and as you probably, well, I'm sure you know, because you've spent a lot of time in this space, it turns you out- meant, What you meant to say is I spent a lot of time failing. I know, I could hear it. <laughs> well, <laughs> failure is our best teacher, I think, if somebody said. But, but, but the other thing is, you know, if you look at some of the most innovative companies, Amazon certainly being one, but there are others, um, they take a lot of swings at bat, as much as I hate to use sports analogies, right? Like, they, you know, they get up there and they try a lot of stuff. And back in the days when I would get in front of audiences and speak, I would ask everybody to hold up their Amazon Fire phone, right? And everybody just sort of laughs and giggles. I right? had, I, mean, I had, an, I had a Fire phone. Well, you were, you're, you know, you're at the leading edge. I was one of the, but, I was one of the two that bought one. I exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, and that's, that's obviously a more extreme example, but, yeah. but, but Amazon tries a lot of stuff, has failed massively at many of them. They, the key thing I think, and I mean, I think it's true of, of the fire technology in particular is what didn't work particularly well for a phone for a bunch of reasons, ended up spinning off a lot of useful technologies that they are now actually using. So you don't always know where you're gonna end up. I think the, the key is to uh, certainly be pointed in the right direction, but to try a lot of different stuff, fail fast. If it's a total waste, move on. If there's something that can be gleaned from it, great, pivot, incorporate it and, and keep going. Yeah, my, my folksy version of that is you have to kiss a lot of frogs. Exactly. The, uh, <laughs> well, and if, you uh, knew, and, and, if you knew what was gonna work, I mean, this is the thing that I think is so obvious that people forget. Like, if you knew from the beginning what was gonna work, you would just go do it, right? But there's a real risk, you know, Ron Johnson's tenure at JCPenney being a great example of assuming the big answer was, was going to win. So I think it's just hard, particularly as, as I mean, putting the pandemic aside, but just the, the pace of disruption um, is so fast. And, you know, cloud technology and other things allow things to scale much more quickly than trying to build a thousand Home Depots over, you know, a 10 year period, right? So it's a really yeah. different world to innovate in. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, uh, Steve, I can't believe how quickly the time's gone by because I have still a whole giant list of questions I'd love to go <laughs> over uh, with you. So maybe uh, we can have you back uh, down the road and, you know, we can sure. continue the discussion. Uh, uh, we really appreciate you coming and spending some time with us and sharing uh, uh, some of your insight. And uh, Carlos, I'll let you take us away. I just would like to thank you very much, Steve. It's been a, it's been a pleasure and uh, really like a masterclass. It's, it's been wonderful. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Obrigado. That's my, I think the only no. word of Portuguese I know, <laughs> but I appreciate you guys having, having me on. It's been great. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you.